Welcome to Gen X Films and Friends, the podcast where three friends discuss the films that shaped and scarred them. This episode was recorded early June of 2020. According to Garp. As a kid, raised to be a middle class white feminist with lofty ideals such as, I might keep my name when I get married, and I should get equal pay for equal work, and why are only boys ever given breaks from classwork when furniture needs to be moved? I thought Garp might actually be a feminist comedy. After all, the likely heroine did have the audacity to raise a child by herself and reject traditional ideas of marriage. But watching it as an adult, I realize it is a 1980s cartoonish male vision of feminism. A hyper-sexless woman who mysteriously always wears her nurse's whites, rapes a man who may have enjoyed it. Later, she creates a safe house for prostitutes, for women who turn their anger into violent acts against their own bodies, and the most relatable character, a transgender football player. There's a writer, a house husband, who, of course, cheats on his wife, followed by her revenge affair, which results in, of course, the tragic loss of a child and the bitten-off penis of the transgressor. There's a consolation baby who has the unenviable burden of making everyone feel better for their stupid mistakes and resultant hurts. Then there's a mysteriously sadistic woman named Pooh who has no voice, no backstory, no context, but like lightning causes a wildfire forces a plot to its pointless conclusion. I'm embarrassed that I ever referred friends to watch this movie based on my childhood assumption that it was rooted in feminism. A movie directed by white men, based on a book written by a white man, told from the point of view of a white man, only had one thing in common with the feminism I grew up with. It was chiefly about white people. The one thing I'm so over. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We are reviewing the world according to Garp. Uh, and also this is post or in the middle of George Floyd uh, protests. So I don't know how that's, I don't know. It seems weird doing this podcast to me actually with everything going on. Yeah. Yeah. I have to admit at the end of the movie, the first thing I thought was there was not a single person in that movie that wasn't bright white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I don't yeah. think there was even a background person who wasn't white. Like it was really there white. Was, of course, it took place there, in New Hampshire, but the, there was a woman who asked uh, there. Uh, so the, none of the main characters, but asking Jenny to sign her book for her husband. Oh yes, but I, I think her, that's right. The, that's only, right. the only lady, and they may have done that because she was in a city to try to make it a bit more real. You know. I don't know how they lived in New York. For is. Part of the movie, they lived in New York yeah. City, and everybody oh, yeah. was white. It seemed. I remember her being extremely conservative about sex, but I found this time she. I I didn't. I saw her more as matter of fact and very scientific and clinical and a lot more loving. And like I didn't remember yeah. that she like was really excited to see the grandkids and stuff. So it was that was an interesting um, change of interpretation, I guess, perception after being yeah. a mom. Uh, me too. But I think part of it also has to do with my uh, relationship with my mother was pretty meshed. And so seeing a mom actually give her kid independence mm-hmm. 
Because that's what she would do a lot of the time. She let him sit and have his weird thoughts, you know. Mm-hmm. I think I interpreted that as her not caring as a kid because of the kind of relationship I had with my mother. And then now as a mom and trying to figure out how to support your child who's a completely different from you. She, I don't know. It, it made me, I wanted to be more like her because she gave Garp room to grow and learn. She I was think, more of a good guide. I think it was actually a good guide on parenting about not yeah. letting your child be what you want them to be, but giving them the space to be who they are and kind of yeah. just gently guide them in the direction that they make good choices and that, you know, they have strong mental health and stuff like that. Yeah, I got it. It was a totally different interpretation um, this time. This movie is actually one of the movies that got me completely enamored and interested in transgender transvestites and drag queens. And I use this for, I used uh, Roberta as an example of the difference for my senior project in 95. I did Mm -hmm. the difference between drag queens, transvestites and transgender. And she was the only transgender character I could find um, on film. So that was interesting because I remember it was really hard for me to find transgender information in 1995, which now that seems like ridiculous considering how much information we have now and how many characters and people mm-hmm. we have. Um, but yeah. That was definitely the first movie where I, where I ever saw a trans mm-hmm. person. Yeah. And it wasn't the fact that it wasn't a big gag, but it was just like part of life and everybody just sort of like, Oh, okay oh you're oh football player oh okay and then just moved on it was like oh yeah that's well and one of my favorite things is when he goes to the house um and he first meets roberta he he acts like nothing is weird like roberta's the only normal one and Mm -hmm. when when robin williams says do you look familiar and he explains who he is there's no like oh my god you're kidding me it's just like oh okay now we can go on you know Oh, that's where I know you from. Okay, great. Like, it just wasn't, like you said, it's not a gag. It's not, it wasn't shocking. It was just, and I love that that he was the most, or she, she, Roberta was the most normal one there. Mm -hmm. And this was John Lithgow's first uh, movie. Oh, really? really? Yeah. I'm almost positive. No, John Lithgow played other things. He's been acting since 1972. But was this his first major, maybe it was his first major film. Yeah, I know Glenn Close. I read an interview with her last night, and I guess this was her first major film. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she was 35, which made me laugh because I have to say, she looked authentically like a young new mom and authentically like a grandma. Yeah. Like it was, she was like right at that age, age. and with the, the bones of her, the way her face looks, mm-hmm. like she could pass the other side with very little. What's weird? Like plastic. Sorry. Yeah, what's weird though is this movie was just made a year before The Natural and she looks so I had listened to a review about The Natural who said they said how they made Glenn Close look rough and I was like you're being judgmental but then comparing her from this movie to that movie they are kind of right like this movie really did a good job of making her look really good like you said when she was young Jenny she definitely uh, looked authentically young but in the natural, when she was young, whatever the heck her name was, Iris, I, whatever, she did not. 
One thing I thought about too, Beverly, is something you said about the natural, about how Glenn Close's character was, it would have been more interesting to know about her story. I felt the same thing about like, I would much rather know how Jenny decided to do all this and to like, I would have much rather enjoyed Jenny's story, I think, than uh, Robin Williams' story for sure. That was one um, thing I was a little disappointed about when I thought after watching the movie, um, I remembered it when I was younger. I really liked it when I was, um, I don't know, I think I watched it when I was uh, 12 or 13 or something. And I really liked it. And I always thought of Jenny. I actually loved Jenny's character when I was younger. And I always thought of Jenny as being like total, like unintentional feminist. She just does what is true to her heart. And I liked that. But now watching it as an adult, I didn't feel like it was, I felt like, but by not giving very much motivation really to any of the characters, but not fleshing out their motivation very much or their nuances of their personality, it kind of did a disservice where everybody felt just a little too cut and dry. Mm-hmm. Like the Emily Jamesians, you never really understood why or Ellen. they were compelled to do yeah, Ellen thinks why they were compelled to react the way they reacted. You just trusted that Jenny said they were angry. And, you know, you live in this world, so you can imagine why women might be angry. But you don't, I don't know. It just, you, it wasn't, I was looking at the book he wrote about the whole issue. And I was like, how did he get that much to write about when we don't get, like, what's in the rest of that damn book? <laughs> and uh, with with Jenny Clo- Jenny's character, it's the same thing where you're like, I want to go into what her book is about. I want, I don't know. I felt like it was like, the writer again kind of knew enough to know that he wanted to put together some madcap adventure type story of life but not didn't have enough depth of thought to want to actually take us on the characters journeys themselves with um one of the reviews actually that i read for uh, the contemporary reviews the person complained that it was basically a string of vignettes because they it's like they tried to get all the juicy parts of the story um and and so that was their complaint is that it was relatively flat because of that that's well, that's kind of how i felt too which is funny because that's like terms of endearment also did the same thing for me so i was like was that a thing in the- probably was <laughs> a thing in the 80s i felt like we didn't really know anything about garp like he yeah and like what, what you said, like his motivation, like the whole thing with the babysitter. And then the next thing, you know, yeah. all he talks about is how much he loves being a father and being in the moment. And he's so happy to be married. And, and I'm like, you just fucked the babysitter like 15 minutes ago. And then the, like, then their, their relationship to me was very confusing. Like you seem really annoyed with him, but now you're enamored with him because he wrote a good book. Like it made me think. I can't remember his wife's name, but it made me think that where's her depth? Where's her, where's her motivation to stay in this relationship? And, you know, if she, I don't know. And if he's that into her, then why is he, I felt like he was kind of ignoring her all the time and just like really excited when she was having a baby. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It just felt like you said that whole thing. And I remember feeling like she totally slighted him when I saw it last time and she was so bad for cheating on him, not realizing I thought that he had turned down the babysitter and that's how I remembered it. And Mm -hmm. so I don't know. It was just kind of, 
it was very interesting to me that yeah well i guess in the book they both have multiple affairs so there's definitely more there in the book sorry beverly no that's okay that's interesting it's like um it's almost like they're adam smith um characters in an adam smith if adam smith uh, the the economist wrote a novel everybody's just behaving with one singular straightforward motivation like she just wants a baby so she's going to have a baby mm-hmm. uh, you know garp is just horny so he's going to have sex um helen just wants to marry a writer so she's going to marry a writer and he's going to be a writer because he's horny for helen and it's like everybody just has these really like linear one yeah. motivation next action one motivation next action there's no like it just that that part feels hollow mm-hmm. um like everybody's just responding to one thing she gives the guy a blowjob because she feels sorry for him that's it well and that no and, no more nuance than that she just felt sorry well, for she him. Wants a baby. And part of me and part of me in that one is i was like don't get in the damn car <laughs> yeah like what you the crap why would you when do he that shows up, just be like you gotta go and if you don't then at least you're in the house and he's in the car when your husband shows up and maybe your husband can get rid of him you know it, it was just such a weird it was such a weird like yes I'll give you a blowjob really quickly and this will make it all go away and I'm like I, I it was just the weirdest the motivation for him was so weird like I'm obsessed with you I'm in love with you all I really want is a blowjob and I don't know it was just the weirdest yeah I don't remember it being that way when I saw it the first time but my you know I was probably the last time I saw it I was probably a senior in high school so it was it was just very it it was enjoyable and entertaining but it was also very I don't know it was very bizarre yeah (laughs) flat in a lot of places and like and then my my whole thing is like well how long like I want more information about Roberta too you know Mm -hmm. like where I want more more yeah she's so I wanted more I mean got Mm -hmm. that convertible I mean I don't know. I and she's so loving and understanding. I want a Roberta in my life, right? Because it seems right. like she's unconditional too uh, in her friendship. Yes, you know? she. <clears throat> and just when she comes back from the cruise, and she just kind of knows to kind of like love on everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jenny, Jenny, and Roberta were both good at providing those models of I mean I felt like Jenny too was very incredibly compassionate and she wore that nurse uniform in some completely unnursing situations like I'm like why the heck is she did she just walk around her house in a nurse uniform all the time like why is she wearing a nurse uniform so now? it used to be it used to be that like so when I graduated from nursing school we still had one nurse wearing a cap and her outfit And, um, she, they got rid of, they made her get rid of the cap because we found out through science that the caps were nasty. And so, cause they were being worn in every room, like think about the germs and you couldn't wash them. So they made her get rid of the cap and she said she refused to wear scrubs and that she would always wear her nursing dress because she worked so hard for it. And she, she was a lot old. She was in her sixties and she said, Back in the day, getting a nursing license was a really big deal. And so you wanted everybody to know, like a cap and your, your, your nursing cap and your nursing dress were a huge thing. And the uniform for her, it was a, 
it brought a lot of respect. Um, and she wore it a lot. <laughs> and so I, that's what, that's how I took it is like, oh, back okay. in the day, nurses were kind of authoritative and had a lot of respect. And so they would wear like, yeah, she would just wear it all the time, probably just so people knew that she was the nurse, you know? Well, also though, at her home, that was like a rehabilitation center for women. So I think right. that's part of why she wore it around the house. Uh, I thought also, um, I guess I didn't know this. Robin Williams was waxed in order to look younger for when he was. <laughs> of that. I don't. They forgot to wax his feet. He looked like a freaking hobbit. I know. <laughs> and then John Irving was the referee in that match with where Helen and he are staring at each other. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. I was going to say, I didn't understand who, what's the name of the girl that shot him? Pooh. Moki. Yeah. Pooh. I didn't understand Pooh at all either. Yeah. I didn't understand anything about Pooh. I was so confused about Pooh. Yeah. <laughs> and why was her name Pooh? Like, well, maybe she, that's we'll why everybody she poops became a later. woman. It's because her name was Pooh. Well, you see, you get a little taste of Pooh's life when she's young, right? When they're standing for that picture. Right. Our mom is like, if you don't smile, you won't get a husband. Mm. It's just, um, but yeah, there has to be something more in the book about Pooh's hatred for Garp for some reason because she doesn't like him when she's a kid, right? Mm. And I guess in the book, he develops a relationship with Ellen James. It's not just a moment; they they have a, a deep friendship. Which, when I saw Ellen James, I was like, does anybody? Or, this is a robbery! <laughs> Whatever it was. Oh, yeah. Oh, you oh, get, yeah. get down. Yes. This is a robbery. That's what I thought, too. Amanda That's Plummer. What I thought too. I totally... Good old Amanda Plummer. Yeah. Yeah. I'd totally forgotten that she was Ellen James. I think, I don't know how you guys are, but I'm still stuck on events. And it just doesn't feel... This podcast feels like it's being uh, uh, pushed today. I don't know. How do you guys feel? Well, I feel like part of the problem with this movie, which I, I think this isn't the first time it's happened, is that it just, because it lacks depth, there's just mm -hmm. not much there's to There's just talk not about. much to talk about. It's just mm -hmm. kind of white bread, you know? It, mm -hmm. I mean, in addition to being a bunch of white people, it's kind of fluffy and ooh, madcap realities of life, which aren't anybody's realities, by the way, um, some of them. And uh, then it's done and you don't, there's nothing really to sink your teeth into. Yeah, it feels kind of like the last couple have been kind of the same, like kind of the same style of, you know, like terms of endearment and um, the natural just kind of like, there's just not a lot to dig into. Yeah. <laughs> I think we yeah. hit the shallow spots of some movies here. And I don't know. It, it's odd to me that there was more to talk about in Romancing the Stone than, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's kind of weird. I asked Orion the other day what his favorite movie is. And he looked at me, he's like, it's Romancing the Stone. <laughs> it has everything. And I'm like, shut up. Are you serious? He's like, yeah, I am. <laughs> like, okay, whatever. But um, we like we enjoyed this. It was, you know, we enjoyed it. But 
it's not something that like I would want to watch over and over and over again. Like I think every, let's see, 18, uh, 25. So every like 25 years is probably good, you know, cause that's about how long it's been. So one of the things yeah. I loved about this movie is my son's reaction, which he ended up leaving in the middle of it cause he was too uncomfortable, but in the beginning, he was uncomfortable at the beginning cause as the baby is being tossed up and then it goes all the way up so that you can see the baby's junk. Gregor's response was, they didn't ask that baby for permission for that. Like he was, <laughs> he was upset that the baby was taken advantage of. So I guess he doesn't like Nirvana either. Uh, he's not seen the album. But that doesn't mean mm. he's heard it. He likes rock. He likes things with heavy bass yeah. and beat. So he's fine with the Nirvana. I remember going through that mental when the Nirvana album came out being like, uh, nobody asked that baby's permission. <laughs> so I remember going through that same thing with that. So when I was watching the movie, I was like, oh, it's the Nirvana thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I remember um, the part I thought was going to be harder to wrap my brain around was the fact that she rapes Gar- yeah. Garp, the, the original father Garp. But then I ended up, as I was watching it, I was like, you know, she makes a point in when at a time it, when marital rape was legal, if she had gotten married in order to have a kid, that would be signing up for the permission mm. to be raped. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it is the lesser evil. At that time. And so, I don't know. I found myself just being like, ah, okay. I love that they bring it up, actually, when she's talking to the older gentleman. I did not remember yeah. that when I'd seen it before. So I like that it was uh, how there was a character that didn't assume, because what man wouldn't want to have sex, right? So yeah. I did like that. I liked that, too. I'd forgotten, too. I sort of thought that the takeaway was, well, you know, he probably liked it. Well, he did say good. There was a... The only- he did say good. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I thought I was surprised. I'd forgotten that Jenny's character was so um, asexual that she just was not into it at all. I'd forgotten about that, actually. And I was sort of watching that now going like, is she like, huh? <laughs> it, was, I, I, it made me wonder this morning as I was getting getting up and thinking again about it. Was this some sort of a like a virgin mother sort of parable happening here she has a baby but she's not into sex she doesn't want to be part of your sexual world she's almost saintly mm-hmm. revered it's just like i don't know but purity was, whites too yeah, yeah yeah i don't know where i don't know what the point of that was that just kind of made me wonder if that w- if there was an intent to draw some sort of parallel the feminists yeah. virgin mary Again, kind of like the natural, where it's like, okay, so it's all an allegory, but who cares? <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, I've only read a couple of John Irving's books, and I haven't looked into his life, but like the uh, Owen Meany book had a single mom. Like, there's a lot of, I think there's a decent amount of single moms in his books. Maybe that's something he relates to. Um, I didn't think about it until that weird summary of it about how Garp is basically surrounded by women. And, he, and that's a 
That's yeah. a problem. No, no. Is that what it was saying? No, yeah. Oh. Well, no. <laughs> they use the the word dominated by. And it's just, it was bizarro. But um, I felt, I don't know. I felt like, so Garp, one of the things at the end of the movie, he says that he likes to think about the past, basically, and, and have those memories, not live in them, but just think about them. And I, I, I think Garp is just an observer. Like, he's just a tool to show these different events. And that's part of the reason why yeah. there's no depth there. And it's really a sad story. As one of the things that the reviews had said that, that you know, if you listen to what Garp says, it's like a, a loving family. Uh, well, yeah, a loving, f- it's just, it's about being a part of a family and loving each other. But then if you look at the events that happen, it's, it's just a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. There, it is like their life is not pre-disastered. Mm-hmm. It just keeps getting re-disastered. re-disastered. Yeah. Right. Like, People get violently shot or, or violently die in this movie, or it's suffer extreme violence. I guess. I mean, the mom's shot. Walter dies in a car accident. The son's shot. That's kind of a high yeah, ratio in a family. I agree. Yeah, in in completely separate events. Mm-hmm. Although maybe that's normal. My I never met two of my uncles because they both died in separate car accidents. Um, and one of them, the whole family died, the, my uncle, aunt, and their two kids. So maybe back in the time, life, life. Well, it was pre-seat yes. Yeah. And that's, uh, I know my grandmother lost a brother in a hunting accident and another brother in like a car accident. And another one died young from a heart attack or something. So, like, you know, that's three out of, like, eight kids. <laughs> Still not oh. the same odds, though, in Garp's family. I mean, Garp's family. No, that's true. It's only, like, five people. <laughs> yeah. It was. And even their, like, scene where he comes in and talks about how he misses her and he's letting go of some of that anger even that felt kind of artificial and then it's like let's make a baby again because that's the only thing that works in our relationship that part felt really like really miss walt let's have a baby and that's the whole healing conversation that you guys have about losing your son right Mm -hmm. i don't know it was like roberta was such an integral part of everything and i loved that and like you said it was just so loving and caring and um and I one thing that I did think was interesting is they were playing the game when the boys were pretending that she was the princess but then they called her I thought they called her uncle Roberta and I was like I missed that wait you just called her a princess they used the wrong pronoun at one point and it was just weird to me like you you're talking about how you're saving your princess and all this and then I think they called her uncle Roberta and I was just like, oh, that's interesting. I guess things weren't, uh, you know, I don't know, as progressive as maybe we thought. But still, it was just it was just one of those things that I probably didn't even notice back then. But now, it, you know, you notice those things because pronouns are such a big deal. And, you know, it's something that we do out of respect. So, um, yeah, it was interesting to think of just 
little things like that that you would notice. But um, yeah, I just think there's not a lot to unpack. I think we've unpacked most of what we can get from it, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I think uh, I think you're right. Yeah. And it just I'm feels. Glad I rewatched... Oh, sorry. I'm glad I rewatched it because I'd been recommending it to people and because I, as a young person, I had liked it so much. And now I watched it again. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to recommend right, it anymore. Right. I just don't think there's enough there to. I just think the last three movies have been very similar to each other. It's more simple. In kind of. Mm-hmm. It's just Maybe more it's time simple. to zip out of the early '80s and find the the early '80s. Let's just say they were they weren't deep. No, no. If romancing the stone has more girth to it than this, and this is a drama, and the last three have been pretty intense dramas, then I yeah, the comedies have as much depth as the dramas. Then yes, like we had way more to talk about in the toy. Uh, one thing though is I remember Beverly when we were young and I can't remember maybe it was when we did our trip around the, uh, Oregon and and Washington after graduating but I remember you telling the story of the undertoad you and your yes. your sister were like yelled at by some lady to be watch out for the undertoad and you spent like I don't know how much time looking for a toad under the water. Um, no, I mean, my, my parents and my grandparents, because we went down, because my extended family, all um, a lot of them lived in Southern California. And so every summer we'd go down to Southern California and some grandparent would take us to the beach. And yeah, it was always watch out for the undertow. And I was like, there, I just, I had this mental image of a giant toad under the water that sucked the water in and was going to get you that way. Um, yeah, so watching that movie, I did crack up. Like, uh, <laughs> I got you, Walt. I got you. There was a book when I was a kid, and it was talking about different things. And one of them was Undertow, and it had this giant toe under the water. And, nice. Um, I always, that's what I always looked for, was the giant toe. And I remember I asked what an undertow was because, and then Orion asked, and we were like, it, we don't know exactly, but it's where the wave catches you and you go under. Yeah, it looks like an undercurrent when the undercurrent, basically when yeah. the, when the so. tide is going out, it can pull you out and under. Right. So that's why it's the undertow. Yeah, that's what uh, sailboats way way back in the day before motors used to use in order to go out to sea. Is you'd have to wait for the tide to go out. And I had a. a a great 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 grandfather that was on a, a boat and he jumped he jumped the boat in order to because he fell in love with a woman in Astoria in order to marry her and uh because he waited at the last minute the boat basically would have had the ship would have had to have waited a bit to go get him and so they just let him jump the boat or whatever the right term is jump ship that's the word that sounds like overboard <laughs> A little bit. I know we kind of discussed doing maybe and the band played on to cover the AIDS pandemic because of what we were going through. And one connection I made also is Fauci was in charge then too. And Fauci was also criticized for not responding quick enough. Um, So that's interesting. Uh, But 
in light of recent events, I kind of wanted to change it to do the right thing and hope that should have way more substance. So hopefully that'll help cure this surface level, level films. Yeah. I'm totally on board with that. I remember watching it when it first came out, which I think I was a teenager also. And I remember not really understanding what it was about. So that it's got to have something to talk about. I said the same thing. I was like, I was talking to Jeff last night about it. And I was like, I remember a lot of it went over my head and I was like, I don't quite get this. And some of it I culturally didn't understand. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, I think it came out right after boys in the hood. It came out in 89. I'm not sure when boys in the hood came out. We were in ninth grade when boys in the hood came out. At the same time. Yeah. So probably right around the same time, but um, yeah. And just like, yeah, I remember when we went to see boys in the hood and my mom, we left and my mom's like, that was so depressing. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, what were you expecting? She said, I thought it was a comedy. Oh, jeez. I'm like, what, what did you think the hood was? And she's like, like the hood of a car. I thought it was like, um, oh, animal house. (laughs) Like, uh, no. It's not. So she, that was interesting to me. Cause I just remember she was like, so oblivious and, and I, yeah. I remember boys in the hood. I feel like was like, I felt like it was the movie we had to watch because the LA riots and the Rodney King riots had happened. And this was how we were supposed to like understand racism in America. Like, I felt like that was sort of the, like, dose for white people. Like, watch this because the rights happened and here you go. Now you've done your work. You're right. Done. Right. I don't know. I mean, I thought it was a good movie. I remember being very moved by it when I was, um, when we watched it. But, yeah, that I, that's, I feel like that was it. Like, there were the riots and it was really awful. And then we watched that movie and then that was it for race education for 1989. Well, it was interesting to me because... Malcolm X came out not too much later and I had read most of the Malcolm by X biography, but it was so, um, that I had to carry a thesaurus because the language was so above my like understanding that I constantly have to look in a thesaurus to see what the word was. Cause I didn't understand the word and it was a really heavy read. And, um, then when Malcolm X came out, I just remember being super disappointed in like the whole movie because I just felt like it wasn't, it wasn't what I envisioned when I read the book, but it just didn't get, like Malcolm X didn't get the same, it didn't get the same attention of white people. I think that boys mm-hmm. in the hood did, which I thought was interesting because I felt like Malcolm X was a lot more important of a story, I guess, like an understanding history and stuff like that. But yeah, it was just, I think he wasn't. Um, I mean, really the way I remember boys in the hood, it's about how systematic racism makes um, black gangsters attack each other, but it wasn't mm-hmm. about like white people. It didn't actually call on white people to do anything about it. Right. Whereas Malcolm X is a little bit scary because he's got this history of mm-hmm. not, you know, he's not giving white people a pass. And so I right. think that's part, part of the reason why, I mean, when I was growing up, I felt like he was like the anti-Martin Luther King. No, mm-hmm. no, no, no. If we, 
I mean, if we fail, we get Malcolm X, but if we do a good job, we can have Martin Luther King as our icon um, of civil rights. And, uh, but I didn't, I knew very little about him. I, I had no idea um, that he was like a great writer. And Oh, he's amazing. And we did yeah. well, I was in college and I read some of his writing and I was like, uh, wait, what? <laughs> why, why were we dismissive of this guy? And just all we saw was his anger. Mm-hmm. Well, and he lot. was, and the funny thing is, is I feel like the dad, Lawrence Fishburne and um, Boys in the Hood is more like, more like from the teachings of Malcolm X and, you know, being <laughs> educated and yeah. Um, yeah. he has some great conversations about, you know, being a black kid in LA and stuff. And it, it was just, I don't know. It, it, it's interesting because I think Malcolm X was more edgy. He was uh, an activist and he, um, I think he made, you know, he wasn't always super peaceful. And mm-hmm. I think that, and I think he was a lot more. Yeah. So I think we, I think he scared white people more. Yeah. yeah. And that's why yeah, we didn't learn about it very much people. in school. And that's why we yeah. learned about this little, like, you know, nice little Martin Luther King. And he, Yeah. He was a reverend, whereas Malcolm mm-hmm. X was in jail actually for committing a crime, crime like, a real, right. like a real crime, not just mm-hmm. a, a refusing to. Anyway, yeah, anyway, no, I definitely. We... I know we've gone off on some yeah. tangent. Uh, should we? Raise oh yeah, Garth I forgot about then... that. Oh huh? right, <laughs> I, I know. Uh, should we do airplanes up in the air? Oh no, babies I... in the air. What about uh, babies? What babies about earlobes? Ooh, oh yeah, <laughs> um, that seems appropriately trite for the trite, a rather trite movie. Um, I think I'll give it two and a half uh, earlobes. I was going to give it two and a half, also. Just I was going like, to give it two and a half too. Yeah, solid two and a half. Is this the first time we've all? I think this is yeah. the first time we've all been like, yeah, yeah, two and a half. I love Glenn Close, yeah. I, and I think both her and John Lithgow, uh, Lithgow, deserved to be nominated for their Oscar. It, it was Glenn Close's first nomination, and and like I think, didn't she finally? Did she? Did she finally get the one? What was it, in two thousand eighteen? She was like Susan Lucci. She yeah. always was nominated, but she did not. Exactly. But yeah, she did. She did yeah. great. I loved her. And then John Lithgow too. And I thought one of the things that I thought was refreshing was Robin Williams never was Robin Williams, you know, mm, never broke. Mm-hmm. Apart. Yeah. I thought he did yeah. a good job. It just, they didn't have much to work with. I felt like. They had pretty things. <laughs> it was, I think it was pretty, right? But like a lot of pretty things, it was shallow. Yeah. <laughs> well, All right. There we go. So All the right. next one is Spike Lee. Yeah. Do the right thing. So um, that'll be the All next right. one. Talk to you guys later. And there you have it. Next episode will be Do the Right Thing, which can be found on streaming platforms out there. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. We'll take the house. Honey, the chances of another plane hitting this house are astronomical. It's been pre-disastered. We're going to be safe here.